0: Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us here at Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital business revolution by speaking with the business executives and thought leaders who are profoundly changing how the world works, lives, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is Tom Fisher, legendary CTO, CIO, who's had some great adventures with remarkable companies. And we hope he will share a couple of those with us. Tom, welcome to the Cloud Wars Live podcast. Thanks very much for joining us.
1: Bob, thank you very much for allowing me to join. And I have to tell you, I am a huge follower of not only your blog but now Cloud
0: Wars Live as well. (laughs) Thank you, Tom, and I'll send you the ten bucks for that plug. That that was very kind Uh, of you. I thought we agreed to twenty. I I must have misunderstood. Very good. Yeah. So, Tom, I mentioned this, you know, again, your career, you, you've you been at some remarkable companies, disruptive, high change. Can you mention a couple of those and, and describe a little bit about what you helped them do? Sure. Yeah. So if you want to go all the way back, I was at
1: eBay when it was around four or 500 employees. Wow. And back then, uh, the big challenge, of course, was uh, capacity on the web and the ability to scale was a enormous challenge for these platforms as they emerged from just being essentially distinct businesses into something that was essentially a collective community worldwide. And I had the good fortune of working with people like Maynard Webb and Meg Whitman. And yep. in that role, you know, the ability to extend hardware beyond its capacity through software was the first time that I got exposed to the challenges of the day-in and day-out operations. Though I did not run operations, we had a great team that did that at eBay. And then uh, we we actually created technologies like this notion of sharding data. We yeah. were doing that at eBay before it was called sharding. Since we were emerging as such a great platform, uh, we had literally thousands and thousands of attempts to hack our system. So uh, we created technologies like the honeypot that's commonly used today. We didn't call it that, probably yeah. should have, would be a lot wealthier if we had the <laughs> patents on that stuff. Uh-huh. But by the way, are the very same challenges, if you fast forward to 2018, 2019, the very same challenges that uh, businesses face today in the enterprise. Because, say, hey, after I left eBay, I joined a little company in San Diego because it was a kind of this concept of living and working in the same city. I lived in San Diego and was commuting to the Silicon Valley and then switched to Qualcomm. And Uh, Qualcomm in the early days we were we were probably doing a couple hundred million chips. By the time I left, we were doing multi billions of chips. What a phenomenal culture. What a great company to work for. There I was the CIO for just the semiconductor group, Bob. And even then we decided let's let's try some edgy kinds of things which you know you'll see throughout the history of my career i like that so we brought in oracle 9 the database it just been released and we brought uh-huh. in fusion the middleware just been released and we brought in the latest version of oracle applications enterprise business suite we were the first ones to build it, develop it, deliver it, and uh, actually add code to it for things like warehouse management. So that innovative thought process that, that most people will talk about—that's just you know in my DNA. From right. a, from an operational perspective, we got right. it up, we got it running, and today at Oracle is still running Qualcomm's businesses. Qualcomm, I actually jumped over. I did a startup, which I've done several in my career, but moved to success factors, which uh-huh. ultimately was acquired by, by SAP. Yeah. And there we had this incredible Danish guy in charge named Lars Dahlgaard, who is just constantly in motion. And for a guy who's six foot six inches tall, you know, <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah. you can hear him coming a million miles away.
0: <laughs> yes. And
1: there uh, we started with about, I think we had about, seven or eight million subscribers, Bob. And we we actually grew that base to over thirty million. I think when I left we were at twenty two million subscribers. So I used to tease the guys at Salesforce all the time because whenever I'd be on a panel with Peter Coffey or some of those guys, they would say, Well, we're the biggest SaaS provider in in the world. And I would say, well wait, my math may be wrong because I grew up in North Carolina, but we have twenty one million subscribers. You have five hundred thousand. I think one is greater than the other. But again and Parker Harris used to get a kick out of that because he's from Greensboro. Yeah. Okay, okay. And then, he knows. And then from SuccessFactors, after uh, during the acquisition by SAP, I was recruited to join Oracle, and uh, there, uh-huh. okay. what what a great experience! Uh, but I ran the managed cloud services, and I started running several of the early incarnations of their SaaS platforms. So I became very entrenched in the operations role there. And today, I left Oracle about uh, almost two years ago now, Bob, and and joined a company called MapR. MapR is in the big data category, but that's an area I think that's being retargeted, refocused. Big data always meant Hadoop in the past. And now uh, with MapR, we've tried to expand that beyond just HDFS or Hadoop into being able to manage all data, no matter where it is, on the cloud, on-prem, hybrid models, to be able to do that in a way that a customer makes a single call to a POSIX interface, and we know where the data is, so we go get it for you, regardless yeah. of where it physically is located.
0: Wow, Tom, that is that is quite a series of adventures you've had there, and uh, it sounds like every one of these, you, you seem to be drawn toward sort of high intensity, high pressure, high change environments.
1: Yeah, and, and, and you know something, Bob, it, I think that's part of the innovator's dilemma, right? I don't know who wrote that book. You probably did. But (laughs) one of the innovator's dilemma is you like this stuff, you enjoy this stuff, but you've got to be able to balance it because you're going to run into challenges with, you know, you always have to worry about your health. You always have to be cognizant of that work-life balance, which is something that, you know, I pride myself on being able to do when I reach that point where I need to make the change. I've been very blessed in my career that I've been able to make those changes and they've always led to something more interesting, more challenging, sometimes more pressure. Operations, yeah. you know, anybody yeah. out there that runs operations, seven by twenty, four by three sixty five, it never
0: stops. Tom, uh with that, I, I was thinking of this, you know, uh football team I like, the Pittsburgh Steelers had a pretty good night last night and um You're killing me. You're killing uh, me. I'm a Panthers fan. Pure coincidence, Tom, actually, I swear.
1: Actually, uh My wife is from Pittsburgh, so I don't say that too loud or, you know, I'm likely to get a bash in the back of the head.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. uh, You know, for the last few years, Tom, the Steelers coach, Mike Tomlin, when he is relating how he feels some of the players are doing, he'll he'll use this term of, you know, well, this guy's in the arrow up phase right now. So trending up, doing well, playing better, getting the system right. So I wonder, using that model, that metaphor of arrow up, arrow down, what do you think the, the state of the art is right now for CIOs and CTOs? You know, because, Tom, I think in, in some cases, it seems to me that there's never been a better opportunity for those uh, incredibly talented and skilled technologists to also really jump out and embrace a lot of the business opportunities and the business responsibility, but I think there's some folks that look at this the other way and say, "No, it's a narrowed down thing because as cloud and automation comes in more, who needs IT? What do you think?"
1: Wow, that's an interesting question, and and it does create a dilemma. You know what I see is a trend today is that increasingly businesses, the business units themselves are making decisions. For example, when I was at SuccessFactors, we were rarely acquired by the CIO. We were always bought by the HR system. And the CIO would later find out about it, and we would spend an inordinate amount of time explaining to them, going through the SOC, SSC requirements. Yeah. And, you know, I know you've talked probably talked to uh, folks like Mark Benioff or, or other of the leadership at Salesforce, and Salesforce always sold to the sales organization, and they did it based on the application functionality. And I see that increasingly happening. Even the, our legacy, our, our alumni, guys at Oracle, if you look at the ERP business, They've gone completely software as a service with that and are migrating people from on-prem, like PeopleSoft or Enterprise Business Suite, into their Fusion ERP. And in doing so, they're following that same mantra. They're selling to the supply chain. They're selling to the the business unit, the, the finance organization. Now, Oracle, because of its legacy, has a tendency to be better accepted, unless you have to deal with their contracting agencies, but they have a tendency to to be far better accepted in the enterprise. So making that switch from on-prem to cloud using Oracle's ERP, it's finding greater adoption. Now, I'll tell you what I'm seeing in the cloud though, which is kind of interesting. Do you remember back in the days, Bob, case against case? Do you remember that computer-aided software engineering? Oh
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, InfoWorld or InfoWeek or someone like that did that, and it was like ringing the gong for the case against case. Well, I get asked all the time now about cloud and you know, how, where does it end? And I will tell you what we're seeing because I happen to be in a very innovative later stage startup is increasingly customers are starting to say things like, well, can I run the compute closer to where the action is? And what they're typically referring to is data that may be coming in from sensors or diagnostic data that may be coming through. Can I run that compute at the edge Rather than pulling yeah. all that data all the way back to the cloud, because the ingress and egress is where the one of the most significant costs is for cloud. So they're looking for ways in which they can do that and continue to work the cloud in that hybrid model. But edge is bringing out the ability for you to do increasingly greater compute closer, and then the cloud becomes more of either an archival or reporting or less or a place in which you want run may run a software as a service. But we're seeing a push, particularly in oil and gas and, and in medical, and not so much in fintech yet, because they have such unique regulations, yeah, but other right. areas where they move, where they're beginning to move the compute closer to where the work is being done.
0: I think another area about that is the CIO of Walmart, Clay Johnson, uh, had a chance to chat with him not long ago. He was describing that. He said, right, you know, you got a long haul, all that stuff from all those stores. All the way back to headquarters, then push it back out. He said it's it's crazy. So I think that uh, you know what you're describing there is critical. And as that happens, right, then you have a chance for again a more business oriented, strategic deployment of the data, deployment of the technology, allowing people leading those organizations, CIO, CTO, to be able to not just support the business. And I always thought that was sort of a crappy approach because it meant you're not part of the business. Right and and right. almost like you know at Thanksgiving, you're at the little kids' table and the grownups over here at the adult table <laughs> make the decisions. To, but Tom, that you know what you're describing is you got to the CIO, the CTO. They got to be they are in the business. They can't be separate from it.
1: That's exactly right, Bob. And and CIOs that take that traditional path, Clay happens to be a phenomenal example of a CIO who is very proactive in engaging the business and understanding the business challenge and the business functionality and then driving the organization that way. I'll tell you who else at at Walmart is very similar. Jeremy King. I don't know if you had an opportunity to talk to him, but he is very focused on business functionality and capability, and in, in understanding that because he's a highly technical individual, he can start to articulate what that architecture is to his own team for to support that business functionality. The example that I love to give is if you look at autonomous vehicles, right? the last thing that you want to have is some sort of a anomaly behavior in the vehicle and you got to go back to the cloud to make a determination whether I should turn right or turn left or slam on my brakes or accelerate <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. that, that could be yeah. kind of that could yeah. be a bad thing I, even 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 with 5G that could be a challenge <laughs> but the reality is is that they're great examples and we have customers who are using technologies like Nvidia which can handle High, highly intense compute and multiple sources of input from video to sensors that are inside the vehicle do that analytics at the vehicle level. And then when that anomaly comes up again, it's already passed back to the central cloud so that the next iteration of of deep learning that they do, the rules can be changed inside the vehicle dynamically. It is a very, very interesting model. And it is actually a great use case for, for edge to to cloud. And it, it fits very well with what you described for Clay because I'm sure they have lots of vehicles on the road. They probably have, you know, uh, they've got tons and tons of stores of all, all types of sizes in various locations with various networking capability. And they have to plan for that. They have to be able to adapt to that because
0: those things aren't going to change overnight. So Tom, you know, part of what you were just describing there, you know, these, uh, we're in such a uh, dynamic time right now. So many things that in the technology space and consumer expectations and business expectations, industries are changing, companies are changing, the whole digital revolution coming along so fast. I wonder from with your intelligence and experience, could you get, I'm going to ask you for two examples. One is something that you feel today business people and and technology leaders are overly concerned about. It's like, guys, you know, time to get over that. What's something right now that people are overly concerned about? And conversely, what's something right now on the tech scene where people are not paying enough attention to it?
1: Well, first of all, you use my name with the word intelligence, and I've never heard you do that before, Bob. So I really do appreciate that. That, that, that means I, I have to give you the 20 bucks back, right? Yeah, well, tw-
0: it was 30, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Inflation, Tom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that means you're not a
1: cheap date, Bob. I would tell you that, that the thing that I think people are overly concerned about right now, Bob, I think it's this notion of cloud. Clouds today are highly secure, But, you know, in making a choice on which cloud provider is going to be very dependent on what your unique use cases are. I think what is happening is we're seeing this transformative change as you introduce positions like chief digital officer, CDOs, working alongside the chief information officer or the chief information security officer. So they all have their perspective, and it's kind of like a prism. And you want to be able to grab all those colors or emanate. All those colors on behalf of those, if you will, technical folks that have the responsibility to secure the infrastructure. You know, one of the things I would tell you that I found very, very interesting, Bob, we just got done doing some GPU testing.
0: And I know
1: this will come as a shock to you. We were we were running some fairly standard baselines across Amazon, Google, Azure, and across Oracle. And each of those clouds has kind of different, if you will, flavors to them and different capacities to them. What concerns me is that if you adapt some of their services, you could find yourself locked in. So that's where one of the plays that that MapR uh, will come in and we will say, look, and, and we have customers that are doing this today. You can run on Google. You can run on whatever, right? Oracle. And if you need to switch between the two, we can do that in a seamless, very, very effective manner. Uh-huh. Because when you, So, for example, if, if you run Redshift on Amazon, and I'm not criticizing Redshift. I mean, I, I love its name because the idea is to shift away from Oracle. But at the end of the day, uh, if you're running Redshift, you're really locking yourself into Amazon because it doesn't run any on any other cloud. And if you're a highly regulated company or if you have GDPR requirements and Redshift doesn't meet them, then you're really locked in. So, you know, what what I talk to customers about is be careful of cloud lock-in because the services they provide are phenomenal. They're great. But the problem is, is that because they don't adhere to specific standards, some of those are open source, some of those are not, like S3, et cetera. You always have to be cautious as a CIO or a chief digital officer, what you can run on that cloud. And then if you have to move it, God forbid there's an emergency. Yeah. How do you do that? And how do you do that in a very, very simple way? So, you know, I think the the cloud has emerged. The infrastructure as a service is very strong. I will tell you for infrastructure as a service, just a little bit of background. I don't know that you'll want to use this, Bob, but we did some testing on Oracle's cloud. I can't speak to its cost because I have no idea, but that the Oracle cloud for infrastructure that Don Johnson and his team have created, we're finding it's faster than almost any cloud out there. Uh
0: Well, that's your big the promise,
1: right? Yes. And the reason is, I think Don understands from the top to the bottom, you're always going to have this pushing mechanism. In the current iteration of clouds. your limitations are the network speeds. They're typically 20 E or maybe 40 gigE. Well, Oracle's Cloud was built with 100 gigE speed. So it's <laughs> yeah. super fast. Yeah. Super fast disk and super fast compute. So they're just pushing. You're really just kind of, it's a balloon. You're pushing the problem to different areas and they seem to have solved one of the biggest bottlenecks that you find at scale in the cloud, which is the network. Now, yeah. to, your, to your second question, what to look out for? I know there's been so much hype, Bob, around this notion of microservices for many, many, many years, but with the advent of Kubernetes and with the advent of Docker and containerization technologies, I really believe that the next generation of applications will be a series of Docker containers that use an orchestration engine, like Kubernetes, to connect to each other. And the reason I pick on that, in particular, is we have, because Google is a large investor in MapR, we have visibility to some of the work that they're doing in areas like Kubeflow, K-U-B-E-F-L-O-W. It's an open source platform, Google is where the source is, but it not only works with Kubernetes for orchestration, It also handles the data integration as well. So you call a single Docker container that has a microservices that makes up of a simple functionality in the application. You can string these microservices together and pass data simultaneously. So for me, from a technology perspective, that's very exciting.
0: That is, you know, a little up the down staircase while, you know, traffic going in both directions.
1: Correct, And, and, and what makes it also very interesting is the capability to run artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities on top of these containers or these microservices, suddenly now you've embedded analytics into the function of the application without inhibiting the performance of the application. It's it's very, very interesting. It's going to change the way in which applications are built and delivered in the future.
0: And Tom, that's one of those examples of how quickly something goes from being a fairly uh, unheard of radical idea, like, oh, wow, theoretically, it's interesting, but I don't know if it'll ever work. And it seems like these days, that's 15, 18 months away from it becoming mainstream. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you and I both witnessed the adoption of
1: Kubernetes was frightening how fast it happened.
0: Yeah. And the adoption
1: of Docker was quick. I mean, it was very fast, but then... Kubernetes was like twice as fast. If you look at things like Hadoop, right? Hadoop had a relatively slow adoption. You know, one of the reasons it had the slow adoption is the technologists recognized early on that there are challenges with some of the newer technologies in terms of integration. Hadoop, for example, doesn't work well with AI or with uh, machine learning.
0: uh, Ah, that's not good.
1: Yes, so, so when you look at what's going on, One of the reasons that MapR has emerged as a technology leader is because we do Hadoop, we do POSIX, we do Fuse. You've got to be able to support all the way in which data comes in and comes out, how it's persisted, and the consistency in that data. And you've got to be able to have the capability to connect that information together, which introduces this whole notion of governance, right? Because in the past, governance was a bad word in IT. But now for the business users, governance is critical because knowing who owns that data, getting their permission to use it. If data has to be obfuscated, for example, if you're dealing with PCI, you have to obfuscate name and address or GDPR, you have to be able to erase data. All of that becomes really critical when you're making a decision on what technology to
0: use and the platform to run it on at this media company where I work. It probably 20 years ago, but uh, it was late 90s. And a guy, one of the guys there said, yeah, you know, uh, there's these, these networking companies like Cisco that are coming out. But he said, I think that's the last wave in technology. We've we've got everything now. There's computers and software and now networks. He said, <laughs> that The industry's done. I thought, huh. you know, I couldn't have predicted in a million years what would be coming, but this notion that things are ending. And Tom, that that, that really is a very nice segue. So again, congratulations. You're, you know, you're always uh, ahead of things. I was going to ask, you know, if you look over the horizon, you've alluded to a couple things, but what are a couple things that you feel are gonna start to make huge impacts over the next eighteen or twenty-four months that so right now is just, you know, barely a blip on the radar. I think you're gonna start to
1: see the definition of a smart sensor be very different. The Internet of Things becomes very real. It's real today. The challenge with the Internet of Things is all the data that's coming back, I would say most of it is junk right? It's just telling, it's it's essentially a reporting mechanism. It's not diagnostic yeah. data. I think you're going to see things get, what we call it, going from the edge to micro, so that the sensors have the ability to start to, to do their own determined problem determination and self-healing. We're doing that today at the edge with computing, and I think that's going to get smaller. Now, there's some pragmatic reasons for that, Bob, as you talked about. I mean, the biggest challenge is, the cost of moving all of this data back and forth. Well, the truth is, is that I happen to work with my old employer, Qualcomm. They have a lot of data that comes out of the fabrication process for chips, right? Most of it is, you got to know it, you got to have it, but most of it doesn't have to be traversed the entire network at at the enormous cost associated to it, right? Especially when you're moving data from China or from, they, I don't think they have any fabs in China, but Taiwan or from Korea yes. back to the US, you know, the ingress and egress costs are pretty significant. So I think that we're going to see increasingly smarter and smarter sensors, not just from a functionality perspective, but from a data perspective in terms of what data really needs to get passed back, right? And making those determinations at the sensor level. Now, that assumes a certain level of security because you don't want some external person who may be a bad guy to have access to that sensor to make that determination. Imagine them being able to stop diagnostic data from coming across the grid for electrical purposes. I mean, that would be a huge nightmare. So these sensors are not only going to be smarter in terms of what they do, but also who can make those changes. And I think, you know, if you go over the horizon. That will become where the future of the Internet of Things, which is really just a very, it's a nascent place today, we'll see greater and greater technologies. I think, you know, you see the emergence of companies like C3IoT and others that are beginning to emerge that uh, understand the problem. They may or may not have a solution for it because the technology is not ready for it. So that, if you go to the smallest part, you'll start to see that. On the other hand, when you start to look at the great capacity that's being built, I mean, you know, I think I read a statistic. I can't, I can't remember where I read it, but it's like we generate more data each day than in the late 1990s we generated in a year. I mean, that's the volume capacity. Yeah, it's some yeah some number. You probably know the, uh, those numbers better than I do. That means all right, if you're going to crunch all that data together, you need better compute capacity. And the adoption and the the creation of GPUs by NVIDIA allows you to literally have hundreds of cores dedicated to very, very strategic compute requirements that will actually deliver that value even faster. And I think that's what, you know, you, you, you hinted at it before, but the reality is, is All of this compute, all of this storage, all of this faster network is leading to faster iterations today in technology, but they're going to also include, as machine learning and artificial intelligence come come increasingly into play, faster cycles for the delivery of data. And companies that don't understand that, they won't survive. I saw an interesting statistic. 60 of the companies in the Fortune 500 in the 90s are still around today, or something like (laughs) that. I mean... Well, I, yeah, think, yeah. I think in the future, that could be even smaller. If you look at how Amazon has just grown and emerged and mushroomed out beyond retail, and I know that you know they compete with some of their own customers like Netflix today. Those are the emerging companies that became the first. No, Apple was the first trillion-dollar company. I think uh, Amazon was the second. These yeah. companies, in order to meet the uh, expectations of the street, are not going to be able to continue to do what they do really well and fast, they're going to have to move into other spaces. And in doing so, they have the advantage of they don't have all that legacy baggage that they have to carry forward. They can move into this with the new, latest, and greatest technology.
0: Tom, you know, it's like some of those stories you read about people who've been able to successfully climb Mount Everest. I mean, there are a limited number of people on Earth are able to endure and persevere and, you know, get there up in atmospheres, climates that most folks just can't handle. It's not a criticism of, of you know, 99.99% of the people that are just not able to do it, but these companies that can get up into this super skill, the super velocity, constantly the cultural side of it too, right? Not allowing yourself to get sort of hunkered in and slow and fat and dumb and happy it's just wild these days. So that combination of culture, leadership, innovation, drive, and that willingness to say, you know, I'm not going to be the same company two or three years from now as I am today. And I want to be the person driving that change rather than wake up some morning and realize like, holy crap, I'm more irrelevant than I've ever been before. So I think that that's one of the things that, sort of, I feel it makes the tech business, right, if you look at it the right way, it's just one of the most extraordinary opportunities now that you'll see. There's a good buddy of mine, he's in medical research, Tom, and he said that over the last few years, and I thought of this as you were describing some of those changes just a minute ago, those profound changes. Well, my my buddy, the researcher, he uh, had a degree in cell biology, but his love really was technology. So him and his team, they're using electron microscopes and some other things. Biologic imaging is what they've come to. He said, with today's technology, he said, we've changed the way medical research is done. In the past, he said, we were limited by, you know, you'd take one hypothesis and one approach and you'd sort of really pursue that in a linear, almost like Newtonian type of fashion. And at the end of the played out or didn't, you'd learn some, but then you have to often go back, start at the beginning. He said, today we can gang up four or six or eight or 12 or 15 different hypotheses, run those concurrently. And he said, we can get better answers much faster than ever before in an almost unlimited number of variables that we can try to solve for. So he said, it isn't just coming up with the right answer. He said, you think about it, things like muscular dystrophy or some of these other things that have plagued humans for so long and he said we are really shortening the time to which we're going to be able to cure alleviate overcome some of these things so I think I don't mean to be so long-winded about this but sometimes people look at enterprise technology or some of this big stuff and just think oh my god it's so boring let me go back and jump on twitter here again but the impact that the tech engine is having in every part of our lives I think that's why I've always thought that I think you're a tech optimist. Uh, am I right on that, Tom? Is that, is that how you look at, at this? Absolutely, Bob. What I find so interesting
1: about what you describe is if you recall back in the early days of Google and they continue to do this, they have this concept of you know, essentially taking projects and throwing them against the wall and see which ones stick, right? You can't do that in a highly regulated environment like medical, but from a technology yeah. perspective, it's one of the things that makes Silicon Valley so unique. The fear of failure out here, it's high, don't get me wrong, but it's understood. I mean, in the venture community, I think they're going to get one, maybe two home runs out of every 10 or 15 investments that they do, right? So from a batting average perspective, because I know it's more like Pittsburgh versus Boston, right? So <laughs> the, reality yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. The, re- the reality is that, the reality is that, we need more of that. And I love the story that you just told about the medical community. I myself, as a cancer survivor, see the differences between when I went through it eight years ago versus today, the medical practice, the ability to personalize medicine, it's staggering to me. The other thing that I will also tell you about the medical field is I think the same way Benioff changed the software field, I think there are companies that are emerging or companies emerging out of some of the large medical device manufacturers who are going to change that market because, you know, for hospitals, one of the biggest expenses, the CapEx of buying an MRI machine, for example. Well, imagine a company offering that MRI machine to a hospital at no expense. You only pay per use. And by the way, that's a scenario we are working with one of our customers on. That's the 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 model that they're going after. So the innovation, my point is, the innovation is not only occurring at the functional level, whether it's in fintech or healthcare, it's also occurring at the business model level because the technology allows for that now.
0: And Tom, uh, along with that, that the scale, you don't have to be a five billion dollar company to be able to tap into that, right? I mean, startups can do that. So this innovation, the disrupt, right? right, It's coming from everywhere. So that's a wonderful story, Tom, and um. I think we'll wrap on that high note. And Tom, it's just been a a fantastic conversation. And thank you so much for your time and insights.
1: Thank you very much, Bob. I really do appreciate that. And I feel very honored that you've allowed me to participate.
0: Not at all. Not at all, Tom. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And to all of you listeners, thank you very much for joining us here at Cloud Wars Live, where we explore the unfolding adventures of digital transformation, cloud computing, and how all that stuff is changing, how we live, work, play, learn, and experience the world. I hope you'll join us for other episodes of Cloud Wars Live. Please share your feedback with me at bobevanspa at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.